0: Welcome to the Odd Women Podcast, the show where we attempt to answer the questions you've always or never had about the 18th and 19th centuries. I'm Annalise. And I'm Gabrielle. In
1: today's episode, we're going to tell you all about the Crystal Palace, but not the one at Walt Disney
0: World. (laughs) Wait, you mean to tell me there isn't going to be a Winnie the Pooh meet and greet? I got out my autograph book and everything. Unfortunately
1: not. I think most of us would rather be at Disney right now, but instead we're going back in time to 1851 to visit the structure that was built for the Great Exhibition in London. The Great Exhibition was the first World's Fair or Expo, and the Crystal Palace was the massive iron and glass structure that housed the exhibitions.
0: To provide a bit of a roadmap for this episode, we're first going to discuss the Crystal Palace's architecture before exploring what the international exhibition that it housed included and meant for Victorian Britain. Because this is a topic that is very much intertwined with visual culture, you'll definitely want to check out the illustrations we provided over on the blog.
1: I don't really think you can understand how amazing the structure was without a visual. Before we start talking about the history of the structure, I want you to first look at the illustration I've shared on the blog. You're looking at James Digman Wingfield's 1851 painting, The Opening Ceremony of the Great
0: Exhibition London. So tell me what stands out to you. Well, first of all, I notice the blue cloudy sky through the windows that make up that domed ceiling situation. There's a fountain and a tree inside the building which combined with the windows creates this weird experience of being inside a grand building, but enjoying all the perks of the beautiful outdoors, but without all the bugs. (laughs) (laughs) There's also huge statues and a big crowd, which points to the spectacle aspect of the great exhibition and these kinds of expos. But when you compare the crowd and the size of the people, it makes the scale of the building all the more impressive to consider. The ceiling's already high, you can see people crowded in the second level of the building, so it's multiple stories high. Then you have to take into account the massive dome made out of glass and iron. This definitely feels like an architectural feat.
1: The opening ceremony, which took place on May 1st, 1851, and that is depicted in the painting features Queen Victoria and Prince Albert, who are kind of an attraction in their own right. But the people aren't really the focus of the painting, even though Wingfield does portray a rather massive crowd. The composition pulls our eyes upward to the vaulted transept. What this painting does a beautiful job of is conveying the sheer scale of the structure. It was almost 1,850 feet long and 72 feet wide, and the vaulted transept we see in the Wingfield painting was about
0: 104 feet high. All things considered, the massive Crystal Palace was completed rather quickly. We're talking less than a year.
1: So let's backtrack and learn about how we got to this opening ceremony. Prince Albert and his role as the president of the Society of Arts was one of the principal organizers of the event as he, alongside Henry Cole, wanted to design an exhibition in which inventions, products, and cultural artifacts from a wide variety of nations could be compared. Because the exhibition would be happening in England, it was important that the structure that housed the Great Exhibition reflected Britain's architectural or technical
0: superiority over the other nations. This kind of reminds me of the Olympics and the spaces that are constructed for the events and like the athletes' villages and how that's seen as like an opportunity to build national pride in the host country. Yeah, right.
1: So Joseph Paxton was commissioned to design the building to house the exhibition based on his experience as a gardener who had constructed greenhouses. Before Paxton got the commission, there had been an architectural competition, but there wasn't a standout design that made sense for the project. So Paxton got to work and his design was to be inexpensive, lightweight, and easy to
0: transport. When we look at the Wingfield painting, it's relatively easy to catalogue the materials that were used in this kind of construction. Think prefabricated
1: modular units, and Petra Chu does a great job of summarizing this. Glass panes set in wooden frames, iron girders on which the panes rested, and cast iron supporting pillars that were assembled in less than six months. But while the glass panes succeeded in letting in the amount of daylight that was needed to view the exhibitions, the design and visibility of the panes and structural elements was unprecedented during a period in which two describes as, quote, elaborately decorated historical revivalist or eclectic buildings were the norm. Although Paxton's contemporaries marveled at the shiny glass structure, most thought the building not as architecture with a big A, but merely as a fancy temporary structure. I want to turn to John Ruskin, the preeminent art critic of the Victorian period, to unpack this a bit more. In his words, as he wrote them in his 1854 essay, the opening of the Crystal Palace considered in some of its relations to the prospects of art. Let it not be thought that I would depreciate, were it possible to depreciate, the mechanical ingenuity which has been displayed in the erection of the Crystal Palace or that I underrate the effect which its vastness may continue to produce on the popular imagination. But mechanical ingenuity is not the essence either of painting or architecture. Enlargeness of dimension does not necessarily involve nobleness of design there is assuredly as much ingenuity required to build a screw frigate or a tubular bridge as a hall of glass all these are works characteristic of the age and all in their several ways deserve our highest admiration but not admiration of the kind that is rendered to poetry or to art
0: so it smells to me like there's a bit of fear about the industrialization of architecture or the way art and architecture would change to reflect the industrial age This can actually lead us into the Great Exhibition
1: itself, which encapsulated the ideas of progress, stability, industry, free trade, and imperial expansion.
0: As we mentioned earlier, the Great Exhibition, or its full title, The Great Exhibition of the Works of Industry of All Nations, was really a predecessor of the World's Fairs of the 20th century. With these exhibitions, technology and art would be displayed and organized by nation, fostering a sense of international rivalry, however peaceful, between them. Over 100,000 objects were displayed in exhibitions from across Britain, its colonies, Europe, and America. There was certainly a lot to look at. It must have been overwhelming. The major imperial powers of the time, like
1: Britain, France, Germany, Belgium, and the Netherlands, did have colonial pavilions that Chu writes, quote, "...not only showed the agricultural and industrial products of their colonies, but also presented visitors with ethnographic exhibits that were meant to familiarize them with native cultures in the colonial territories." Such exhibits would include tools, clothing, jewelry, furnishings, and ritual objects, and eventually even the natives themselves. What I think Chu doesn't make enough room for, though, is how problematic these exhibits could be. It's important that we think about the Great Exhibition as operating within a global context. However, as Jeffrey Auerbach suggests, such exhibits could promote and reinforce a troubling belief in the civilized Christian European versus the savage or barbarous other.
0: While we obviously don't have time to survey each and every object or exhibit, as there are thousands, we do want to point to a few interesting ones to kind of show the range. For starters, one of the most popular exhibitions was the Indian exhibit of the Koh-i-Noor Mountain of Light Diamond. The East India Company had confiscated the diamond, valued at more than two million pounds, from the Sikh Empire, and it was presented to Queen Victoria in July 1850. The great exhibition provided an opportunity for the public to view the diamond, though they did so through a large gold cage. In the hands of the British monarchy, the diamond's exotic allure was a means of advertisement, thought to be a means of drawing crowds and attention to the exhibition. The diamond and its placement in the Indian court was one of the first objects a visitor would encounter when entering the Crystal Palace. Siddhartha Shah writes that, quote, The East India Company and appointed members responsible for the Indian court sought to display and narrate their version of an authentic India, one that would dazzle the masses of visitors and reveal to them the many benefits to be gained through occupation. This, quote, faithful picture of India emphasized two extremes, a timeless, fertile, largely untapped wellspring of resources and a land of garish decadence and unfathomable excess.
1: Unfortunately, the public wasn't as taken with the diamond as was expected. People expected it to be a lot bigger, and they weren't impressed by the way it had been cut. It looked lumpy, and the lighting was doing it no favors. The diamond's display was tweaked a few times, but in Shaw's words, and I love this quote, even in its best dress, the boorish mountain was no larger than a nut, and the light it cast paled in comparison even to the dull English sun. Oof. <laughs> The Illustrated London News, one of the most important periodicals of the period, described the diamond as, quote, gigantic, but somewhat rough and unhewn, which Auerbach reads as clearly a metaphor for India itself.
0: Prince Albert had the diamond recut at the cost of 43% of its original carat weight to remove some of its flaws, and it became part of the crown jewels, where you can see it today in the Tower of London.
1: I want us to shift gears now to how America was representing itself at the exhibition. As Marcy Denius tells us, the great exhibition was a major opportunity for the United States to showcase quote the fruits of its independence from England and the virtues of a democratic Republic to the rest of the world. In our postmortem photography episode, we talked about the development of daguerreotypey as an early form of photography, which itself was a kind of competition between England and France. But who we didn't talk about in that episode was Matthew Brady, who was arguably the most famous American photographer in the nineteenth century. Known for his portraits of presidents, military generals, and other famous Americans, such as Edgar Allan Poe, Brady was the recipient of a prize medal awarded by a multinational committee for his daguerreotypes of so-called illustrious American men at the Great Exhibition. And it was reported in a British journal that daguerreotypes are largely displayed by the French, as might have been expected, that country being proud of the discovery. But the examples exhibited by the Americans surpass, in general, beauty of effect and any which we have examined from other countries. The idea that Brady's photographs made such images available to posterity would be especially important in the years following his successful exhibition at the Crystal Palace, as he would go on to become famous for his Civil War documentary photography.
0: I have to say, I love how Liza Picard for the British Museum has made it clear that in true American fashion, Quote, the American display was headed by a massive eagle, wings outstretched, holding a drapery of the stars and stripes, all poised over one of the organs scattered throughout the building. <laughs> Real America vibes.
1: <laughs> it's really hard to write about this event because there are so many different exhibitions to choose from. But I do want to draw your attention to the examples that Picard lists for the American displays. She writes, quote, although the general idea of the exhibition was the promotion of world peace, Colt's repeating firearms featured prominently, but so did McCormick's reaping machine. The exhibit that attracted most attention had to be Hiram Powers' statue of a Greek slave in white marble housed in her own little red velvet tent, wearing nothing but a small piece of chain. This was, of course, allegorical. Together with our Brady example, we can see how one nation could contribute both mechanical technologies and artworks that testified to their industrial and artistic development. On the one hand, McCormick's mechanical reaper revolutionized the harvesting of grain. The grain supply no longer had to be limited by how much grain could be cut and harvested by hand.
0: This invention also freed up farm laborers to work in factories, which was huge for the expansion of the Industrial Revolution.
1: It's clear, then, why the Reaper would be internationally acclaimed at the Great Exhibition. But on the other hand, what about Hiram Power's Greek Slave? There's a lot more to unpack here than just brushing it off with
0: a comment about her presentation being allegorical. Right. The Greek Slave was certainly controversial, for its nudity among conservative American audiences and for its subject matter. The figure evoked both the Greek struggle for independence 30 years prior, as well as slavery in the U.S., which was still ongoing. The sculpture became a site where abolitionists demonstrated against slavery at the exhibition. Lisa Volpe notes that demonstrators gathered in front of Brady's illustrious Americans, too, as part of their critique of the American slavery enterprise.
1: All in all, it's clear that the Crystal Palace
0: housed an incredible
1: amount of industrial, artistic, and otherwise cultural artifacts. Its exhibitions were as deeply political as they were entertaining and didactic. International fairs would continue to grow as a cultural phenomenon well into the 20th century. Yet world expos are not permanent, only opening their doors for a period of months, and the great exhibition groundbreaking as it might have been to its six million-odd visitors, was no exception. The Great Exhibition had opened May 1st of 1851 and closed on October 15th, but the structure itself was not left in Hyde Park. In 1852, the Crystal Palace was dismantled, moved, and reconstructed in Sydenham Hill by the Crystal Palace Company, whose directors raised over £500,000 to purchase the structure. Much of the building material was recycled, though the structure was altered from how it appeared originally.
0: The new Crystal Palace opened its doors on June 10, 1854, and its two million visitors a year were able to experience a variety of different shows and exhibitions that cycled through. From flower and bird shows to photography exhibitions and concerts, the palace became an early theme park capable of entertaining the masses.
1: Unfortunately, this is where the story takes a bit of a turn. The structure was damaged due to a windstorm seven years after it reopened, and there was a major fire a few years later that killed animals in the Crystal Palace's zoo and destroyed many of the exhibits. Financial problems struck after the turn of the century, and there was controversy over the palace being auctioned off. By 1913, the palace had seen better days and had become property of the state.
0: Things didn't really improve for our glassy edifice from that point. Because we can't have nice things, the Crystal Palace no longer stands on Sydenham Hill. It was destroyed by a fire in 1936. Reports show that on the night of November 30th, the palace manager, Sir Henry Buckland, and his daughter, who he named Crystal, like, after the palace, by the way, <laughs> They were out walking their dog near the palace when they noticed a fiery glow coming from inside. Buckland rushed inside to find two of his employees trying to combat a small office fire that had apparently resulted from some kind of explosion in the women's cloakroom. Their efforts to put out the fire were unsuccessful, so they called on the Pench Fire Brigade to intervene. With almost 90 fire engines and 400 firemen, it sadly wasn't enough to extinguish the flames that reduced the palace to a heap of mangled iron and broken, melted glass. It's
1: been suspected that the fire might have been caused by an electrical fire from faulty, outdated wiring, and the dry old wood floors and highly flammable filming supplies stored in the building helped accelerate things. Combined with the high winds that were reported that night, the palace lit up like a torch and could be seen burning in the next eight counties. One of my sources estimates that 100,000 people came out to see the fire.
0: One of those spectators was Winston Churchill, who remarked upon the tragic destruction of the Crystal Palace as, quote, the end of an age, which seems appropriate when you take into account the impossibility of rebuilding the Crystal Palace at a cost of two million pounds and the conclusion of the abdication crisis. Many people chose to see the destruction of the Crystal Palace as symbolic of the end of King Edward VIII's controversial reign. If you head over to our blog at theoddwomen.com, you can see this episode's corresponding blog post, where we have included images of the Crystal Palace and some representative exhibitions as well as suggestions for further reading.
1: This episode actually concludes our summer season! The summer came and went way too quickly, but we hope you've enjoyed what we have produced so
0: far. We'll be back in a few weeks to kick off our next season of the podcast, where we'll be covering fun topics like where our podcast name comes from.
1: (laughs) Stay tuned for our season two teaser trailer. In the meantime, you can catch up on our back catalog, visit our blog, and find us on Instagram and Twitter at OddWomenPod. Don't be a stranger.